0: to invite you to turn to the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, and we're coming today to husbands and wives chapter 5 verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Five years ago I preached a sermon series on marriage, five sermons. We looked at marriage itself, we looked at Jesus and divorce, we looked at husbands, wives, and singleness, and it, In the light of this morning's sermon. You might want to revisit those. You can find them on our sermon website. They're called The Constant Gardener, was uh, the title of the series. And this morning, we come to the same passage. Some of you will have heard many of this uh, this morning before much of this, and many of us will come to this for the very first time. A lot of this might be new to some of us. And whether what you're hearing is new or familiar, uh, we all need this, don't we, together in our church life. So let's read together. Chapter 5, verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. loves himself. Isn't that an astonishing statement. Self care is other care. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. May God bless his holy word to us. We're going to sing this version of Psalm 84. Please do find that passage again, Ephesians chapter 5. And as you find that and have it open in front of you, I want to say that I'm going to attempt today what might seem impossible, and I'm going to attempt it gladly, joyfully, and I'm going to attempt it, I hope, with humility and also with the picture of grace that is on display for us here to see, for you to see this picture I want to try and show you... Here's the impossible. I want to try and show you that the words we have just read together are some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. Some of us will feel that that impossible task is impossible, isn't it? It just cannot be done. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. No, 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 we want to say that... There is no redemption for outdated ideas like this, male oppression, abuse of power. This passage is me, Tarzan, you, Jane. No, it it cannot be done. I, I want us to attempt it together this morning to see why this might be beautiful. I'm going to try that attempt joyfully with you. Winston Churchill said, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm that's me this morning. Some of us want to find this beautiful, don't we? we? We would love to find this beautiful, but we don't know how to. We want to love it, but we don't know where to make a start with it. Some of us this morning, friends, love what these verses say, but because we love it, we read it with tears in our eyes. There is only you and no one else. You, you would love to be married. And some of our tears this morning are because we are married, but there is only one of us here today. You do not have a spouse who, who gets this or wants to get it or, or longs to be here with you. Well, there, there is married pain here today in so many forms. Those of us who are married this morning, we will want to admit, won't we? We will want to admit, if we're willing to be honest, that that the happy smiling faces of togetherness on a Sunday morning, those happy smiling faces do not tell the full story, do they, of the rows and the clashes. And the fact that making a marriage work is harder than anyone ever told us it would be. I mean, weddings are easy, aren't they? Weddings are the easy bit, the beautiful bit. Flowers, music, food, dancing. What's not not to love about a wedding but marriage? The lifelong commitment to the same person through thick and thin. How do you do that? What makes that work? What makes it last? I know I've told many of you before about Andrew Peterson, the, the, the Christian musician. He has a lovely song about marriage called dancing in the minefields. It's his description of marriage. And young people, young people hear the word dancing, don't you? That, that's what we'll have, please. That will be our story, dancing. And the gray heads and the balding among us, we hear minefield. So number one, let's start here. I want to show you several things. I've lost I went back through it this morning. I have lost track of the number of points. Don't even bother uh, trying to keep track. of it. If I use a number, ignore it. But at least here's the first one. We know we're starting somewhere. Well, what makes a marriage work? What makes it last? What makes it grow and flourish? Here's the first thing to see. Marriage works when husbands and wives copy the original. Marriage works when husbands and wives copy the original. Every couple standing at the front of a church at at the top of the aisle wants to think they're unique, don't they? And of course they are in some way. Their, Their love story is not our love story and so on. But look what Paul says to us, friends. that The idea that a man and a woman stand together in a church or a registry office or wherever it happens and pledge themselves to each other and now think that they have to find their own unique way in the world, is not true. No, their love story is not the greatest love story. There is one true original marriage, one great grand love story, the greatest and grandest love story there has ever been. And marriages work when husbands and wives copy that original when, when they take their story and map it onto that great story. It's how, it's how romance films and plays work, isn't it? You've got the hero, the villain, you've got the, the prince, the princess, you've got the tension, you've got the come what may forever love. it's relationships writ large on a huge canvas of drama, isn't it? And we watch it and we look at it. and, And the reason we keep watching and go back again is we watch it and we think, we would love to be loved like that. We would love to be loved by him. Imagine being married to her. In all our limited, broken, finite stories, we love, don't we, being drawn into a big story a beautiful story, a how things are meant to be story. Paul tells husbands and wives here, there is at least one other love story you need to know inside out and know it as well as your own love story. You need to know, husbands and wives, that just like a husband is married to a wife, so the Lord Jesus is married to his people. You, you, you see this all the way through, don't you? Look, look at the way it works. Uh, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. The, the clue is in the little words, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body. Verse 24, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Look at verse 28. In the same way, Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. See, as the Lord Jesus goes to the cross to die, what is he doing? He's giving his life for men and women like us, men and women who have turned their backs on him. It's there in our assurance of pardon that we read this morning, 1 John 4. This is love, not that we love God, but he came looking for us. Men and women like us who have brought ruin and chaos into the world and into our lives. And Jesus came for us. He he laid down his life for his people. Here's what Paul is saying to us today. That love of Christ for his people is so strong, so committed, so passionate that Jesus, well, he's actually a bridegroom. And these people who he loves, they're actually like a bride. And so husbands and wives copy that marriage, copy the original. It's really important to have things to copy, isn't it? Some of us, some of us today have come from homes with marriages we want to copy, parents, grandparents. It is, it is a wonderful gift to have role models. Many of us do not have that. Some of us have come to Christ later in life, and we're, we're kind of staring at these words. What, what does it mean to be a Christian husband? No, no one's told me or taught me I'm, I'm learning the ropes. Some of us are from homes where our dad left, walked away, How do I not become an absentee husband? And even if we've been spoiled with role models, the Bible says to husbands and to wives, we need to have our eyes on someone else, on Jesus, the bridegroom. Copy him and husbands, copy him and marriage will work. The Bible says to wives, you need to have your eye on something else, the church. Copy what the church does to the Lord Jesus and marriage will work. So here's another thing that it means. Husbands and wives, learn to play your part. Husbands and wives, learn to play your part. Marriage is actually like a play, like going to the theater. The man plays the part of Christ and the woman plays the part of the church. That's the clear idea, isn't it? In verses 23 and 24. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What happens on a wedding day is a couple stand at the front. They join themselves to each other. And at that moment, the curtain comes up on their story. Here they are launching out into their drama for life together. But written up above that stage, up above every single wedding, are the words based on a true story, based on an original. So husbands, learn to play your part. Can I encourage you today to learn your lines? Be an understudy to the Lord Jesus. Copy what he does. Look at verse 23, how he gives you your title role. Here's the part you need to play, husbands. Verse verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Do you know in this passage, men and women together, as you work through it, do you know the only verb for husbands, the only command is to love? It's the only command given to husbands. No, No command is given in this passage to be the head very important to get that distinction. I have a good friend uh, who was very disturbed with this passage, that the language of husbands as, as heads and wives in submission, my friend said to me, in our marriage, we've decided that that is a command from the first century that does not apply to us in our day and age. The problem with that is that it is not a command. Paul does not say to husbands, be the head of your wife as if it's something we can wrestle with and just take or leave, he simply says the husband is the head of the wife. There are all sorts of grotesque understandings of that position, aren't there? The husband who shouts at his wife, you need to obey me. Or maybe he doesn't shout, maybe it's worse than shouting, he just has ways of reminding her, I am your head. I'm in charge here. When when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. What about the big issues in life, kids, schooling, finances, all the rest of it? Does headship mean the husband gets to call the shots, gets the kind of casting vote in a tricky situation? Is that—is that what we're doing? The husband says, you're doing it my way and that's that. No, no not at all, friends. Let, let me say what I think verse 23 means, and then I want to give us some illustrations to try and explain it and understand it. Verse 23 is not a foreign idea to us in our world. Here's what I think it means. It means this. If you are a married man, God has designed things so that you are in an inescapable position of leadership in your home. You, you, You don't choose whether to be the head. You only get to decide what type of head. What kind of head will you be? When you say, I do, in a wedding, God puts you in a position of leadership. Now, here's the illustrations. Here's here's, Here's what I think it means. Imagine a young sailor on a ship, and he runs the ship aground in the middle of the night while the captain is sleeping. The captain puts him in charge. The sailor sailing the ship, runs it aground, and all is lost. Who is responsible for the grounding of the ship? Well, here's the way it works. The sailor is guilty, but the captain is responsible. Isn't that right? The captain of the ship is responsible. Remember the Grenfell Tower incident? Here's another illustration, that awful tragedy a few years ago that tore a community apart through neglect and oversight of things that should have been fixed and looked after and put right. And men and women somewhere in an administrative team, somewhere along the line, made poor decisions. But their boss resigns. The head resigns. He takes responsibility. An oil spill pours into the Gulf of Mexico And a CEO sitting in an office in another part of the world who has never even been to Mexico resigns. Why? Because he is the head. Headship means responsibility. It means covenantal protection for a wife in a marriage. You know, put all the different things together. There you are in DFS trying to choose a new sofa together, the, the decisions that you face about housing, where to live, and finances, and schools, and everything. Friends, headship does not mean in any one of those situations the husband gets to decide. Now that, that's not what headship means. It means in any one of those situations the husband gets to carry the can. That's what he gets. Whatever decision is made here on this particular issue, I am responsible, the husband says. Your choice, but my responsibility. Husbands take responsibility for everything that happens in a marriage and in a home. And they say to their wives and their children, you need to know that there is a firewall of protection around you. Whatever you do day by day in the trenches of life, whatever difficulty you get yourself into in any way, shape or form, I will be there on your shoulder taking responsibility for it. Whatever happens, you do it on my loving watch, and I will shelter you come what may. I want to show you what this looks like. It, you don't have to look far to. We're wondering, aren't we? What does it actually look like? I want to take you deeper into the passage. Look where all this is going. Here's the point of it all. Let me give you the verbs, the commands. Husbands, love your wives, and wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Let's just walk through the passage together. These verbs mean several things, love and submission. I think for husbands, for men this morning, it's particularly challenging for us to read this, isn't it? And I want to say to you, however challenging you find it as a husband listening, be very thankful you are not a husband preaching with your wife sitting listening. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's the first thing it means. Love means husbands carry a cross, not a crown. Isn't that right? Love means husbands carry a cross, not a crown. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See the meaning? How did Christ love his bride? By by dying for her, by sacrificing himself for her. Paul says to us, if you want to know what a husband's headship looks like, it looks like a man on 30, 40, 50 years of death row. However long God gives you in your marriage, headship carries a deadly cross. Because the head, the husband, is copying carried a deadly cross. Christian headship in marriage is in the shape of a cross. You, you sometimes hear, don't you, hear people say? I've heard young couples say this to me: we're, "We're we're going to make our marriage 50/50. Each couple's going to give 50 to make 100. But what if each person gave 100% of themselves? Surely that's better, isn't it?" You will have in your life today, I hope, I'm sure you do, I have in my life some people who I know who would literally die for me, literally die for me. There's an incredible blessing and beauty, isn't there, in knowing that you are loved to the point of death by another human being. Why do husbands need to be told this? Why do men need to be told this? I think it's because we don't naturally do it, do we? We don't naturally give ourselves in this way. If you watch a mother with her children, I think what you see there is a kind of natural self-sacrifice, don't you, on behalf of the children. The child coming from the woman's own body, she seems to carry an inbuilt mechanism of laying herself down for her children to thrive and survive. Of course, father's We do it too, don't we? We can do it. Of course we do. But generally, women are much better at surrendering themselves for the sake of others. That is why Paul tells husbands to do it. Here's the very simple diagnostic question for us today, men. What are you going without and giving up and knowing the loss of so that your wife can flourish? Where are you tasting death? for her? What would it look like? Loss of cave time? Loss of mates time? Less advancement in career than you might have hoped for? Can she feel you love her? I read a story this week about a farmer and his wife in the Midwest lying in bed one night, and a tornado swept into, into town. And the tornado swept right up to their house, took the roof off their house, and took them in their bed out of the house into the eye of the storm in the tornado. And the, the farmer's wife was crying and crying her eyes out in the, in the storm. And he, the farmer cried out to her, don't, don't cry. This is not a time for tears. And she said, these are tears of joy. This is the first time we've been out together in 25 years. Can she feel you love her? C.S. Lewis writes really beautifully of the husband's headship. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, This headship then is most fully embodied in the husband whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, whose wife is the most unworthy of him, whose wife is least lovable, The anointing of this terrible coronation is to be seen not in the joys of any man's marriage, but in its sorrows, in the sickness and sufferings of a good wife or the faults of a bad one, in his unwearying and never paraded care or his inexhaustible forgiveness. Lewis says, the sternest feminist critic need not grudge my sex the crown that is offered to it, for it is a crown of thorns. If she had to, could our could our wives, my wife, your wife, point to the blood on the floor? Could she show you the point where she knows that your love for her cost you and has led to your own life ebbing away so that hers grows and flourishes? You, headship is the joyful assuming of sacrificial responsibility. That's all it is that that's what it means to be a husband. Not rugby, not beer, not oil, not finance, not power. Some of us this morning are not yet married, and we wonder if one day we might be. What kind of man do you want to be? Biblical masculinity is heavy. It can only be carried by a miracle of a changed heart and a willingness to die to myself and my dreams and my preferences and my tiredness and my goals and my ambitions and my hobbies and my perfect neat and tidy world. Do you want to be that kind of man? Marriage is dancing in the minefields. How, How do we do it? What are the minefields? Job, house, mortgage, children, health, Money, time, age, disappointment, failure, success, lust, boredom, burnout. How does any couple navigate those things in life so that they don't explode in their laps and pull them apart? There is only one answer, friends. Choose to die now, before those things arrive, before they kill you. Paul says to us today, men, take to the stage of your marriage. Take to the stage already dead. Die today and you will live tomorrow and the next day and the next. Here's Andrew Peterson in in that song, Dancing in the Minefields. I do are the two most famous last words, the beginning of the end. But to lose your life for another, I've heard, is a good place to begin. Because the only way to find your life is to lay your own life down. And I believe it's an easy price for the life that we have found. Love means a cross, not a crown. Here's another thing that love means. Love means bestowing loveliness. Love means bestowing loveliness. This is verse 26 onwards. Paul will not let us love our wives in the abstract, will he? It's easy to say, I love you. You know, the, the husband who says to his wife on her wedding day, I love you, and I'll let you know if anything changes. No, it's it's not what love looks like, does it? Paul ge- Paul gives husbands here two things to do, verse 26 onwards. Husbands, be a beautician and be a dietitian. Your role is to make her beautiful and to keep her healthy. Look what Christ did to make His wife, His bride, beautiful. He gave Himself up for her, verse 26, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that He might Present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ died to make us beautiful. Husbands die to make wives beautiful. I think the idea is of the husband taking on himself the goal of leading his wife into growth and wholeness. It is particular and exclusive. Do you notice that? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. One bride for him, one woman for you. It's really true, isn't it, in the pub. Some men, if you listen to them, are experts on women in general, but not so good on what just one woman wants and one woman needs. And notice it is initiating love. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That word himself is significant, isn't it? It was his own initiative. Who speaks first in your marriage? Who apologizes first? Who who offers first? You know, I, I was thinking this week, we have lost the art, haven't we, of male to female courtesy, haven't we? I don't know what you think about this, opening car doors, opening house doors, buying drinks, getting seats, showing a woman to her seat, and so on. People don't like that today because we think it's a comment on female weakness. But it's not, is it? It it displays the gospel. It is you before me. That's why it's done. You before me. It's my life for your life. Part of being a man is meant to be that you say all the time, I am here for your service. It is also, look at it, friends, again, it is unconditional love. What, what, what must this bride have been like that she needed to be washed with water? Verse 27, presenting her to himself without spot or wrinkle, without, so that she might be holy and without blemish. The idea is that she had all those things. And Christ comes to his people and cleanses her. He doesn't find her attractive. He makes her attractive. This love is purposeful, it is particular, it is initiating, it is unconditional. I want to say to us this morning, husbands, you decide what it will mean to live that example. In your own married life, work out that example for you. It will look different for each of us. It will mean something new and it might mean stopping something else. Michelangelo said, the great painter Michelangelo said, My wife is my art my children are my work. Notice too, not just beautician, verse 28. This is what we were speaking to the boys and girls about, wasn't it? The husband is dietitian. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I, I, I think I find these the most astonishing verses in the passage. In marriage, she becomes me. She becomes me, just like your body is you. So you you can't you can't do something to your body without doing something to you. We don't just say oh, I've lost I've lost a hand, but it's just a hand. It's not it's not me. No, it, your hand is you. It's who you are. It's part of you. If you want to love yourself, you need to love her. See, I, I was asking the children, wasn't I, about what would their body say about them. You can see the kind of perplexity in their face. It's an odd thing to ask, isn't it? But I think we get it, don't we? If your wife could speak and say what she thinks of you, her body. We know what a new bride says, don't we, on her wedding day, standing at the front, full of love and praise and admiration. Oh, he's the best in the world. But what does she say in five years time or 15 years or 30 or 50 years. Paul says the challenge of this passage is that what she will say about you depends on how you love her. Friends, it is into that kind of world, this kind of world that the Bible says to wives, submit to your own husband. Not to all men in general, note, but to only one man in particular. Headship is the assuming of sacrificial responsibility. Submission is the assuming of sacrificial unity. That's the way to put it together, isn't it? Headship assumes sacrificial responsibility. Submission assumes sacrificial unity. It is the, the desire for oneness over twoness. We We are a family unit with one agenda, not two agendas. Biblical femininity is as costly as biblical masculinity. You might be ready to be married if you're willing to count the cost. I wonder if you noticed at the end of the passage verse thirty three did you notice that the verbs are different? Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband her, her husband. Husbands are told to love their wives' wives to respect their husband. You can tell me afterwards what you think about this. I think it's because that those two things can be the dominant emotional need of each sex, and they're different. When women bond with each other, they tend to bond over love for each other, care for one another. And when men bond with each other, they tend to bond over respect for each other. And now here's a man and a woman finding themselves glued together in marriage to their amazement, speaking two totally different emotional languages to each other. A man looking for respect and a woman looking for love. In in, in our early days of marriage, verse 29, Angela had to uh, direct my attention to those verbs in verse 29, nourishing and cherishing, A, a bit more of that, please. And I had to say to her, I do not know what those words mean. And women instinctively do know, don't they? You know what it looks like to nourish and cherish. Men, you know what it looks like to feel respected. I want to encourage us as husbands and wives to learn a whole new language. And it will be costly and time-consuming and painful. Sometimes you see the beauty of a passage like this up close in really beautiful ways. You, you, you get glimpses of the glory of Jesus' love for us in the concrete love of a husband for a wife. Do you remember Walter Burkhart's story? He was a surgeon, and the, the story is called, is called A Kiss on a Crooked Mouth. And Walter Burkhart tells the story like this He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies. Her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. And she will be this way from now on. The surgeon says, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they, I ask myself, this young couple? He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will, it is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young husband smiles. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. Unmindful of me in the room, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss is still works. You know, friends, whatever is beautiful in that story, do you know that whatever is beautiful there is just a pale reflection of how the Lord Jesus loves you? His story of love for us, all our love stories are mere faint echoes of what he has done. What, what is here in these verses? What has he done? He's taken to himself a form that was not his by nature, the eternal Son of the Father's love and light and glory. And he enters our world born in the likeness of men, in all our weakness and frailty. What does he come as? A servant to love his disfigured bride, so disfigured by sin. Oh, friend, this morning, wherever... Ephesians 5 finds you today. Do you know he has stooped so low for you? So low. And so, wives, respect your husbands. Submit to them in everything. Husbands, brothers, love your wives. Amen.